Welcome to Embargo, intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Tim O'Toole, and with me today is my friend, colleague, co-host, and international trade legend, Doug Jacobson of the law firm of Jacobson, Burton, and Kelly. Doug, it's really great to have you on the on the podcast. Thanks for being here. All right. Well, thanks, Tim. Glad to be here. And uh, I don't think this is an emergency podcast, but some people do think it's an emergency. Yeah, it's it's actually a big emergency in China. And fortunately, we're going to we're going to break some news today, although we're not obviously going to re- release this live. It sounds like just before we got on to record on Friday afternoon, the Commerce Department came out with some FAQs. So just to set the stage, we're going to spend today talking almost entirely about some actions that the Commerce Department took on October 13th, 2022, with respect to China. Actually, uh, actually October 7th. October 7th. No, October, October 7th. Exactly. Well, so so one of those actions related to the unverified list. And then there was a, a much more prominent, or at least it got a lot more press, uh, action that related to a certain advanced um, computing integrated circuits, so basically supercomputer chips and uh, manufacturing equipment that would uh, allow for these types of um, semiconductors and, and that sort of thing in China. And so, Doug, why don't you kind of just set the stage for what happened with the Commerce Department? Tell us a little bit about First, the UVL actions, the unverified list actions, and then we'll turn to the to the super chips. Yes. So there's a lot to unpack. And um, it's been a very busy three weeks since this rule. It's hard to believe it's only been three weeks, but it's been nonstop. And I can tell you from a practical practitioner level that it's really taken this long, and it's going to take longer for companies to still figure this out. And companies are still figuring this out. But let's talk about the two separate rules. So because it is, I think, important to understand both of them. And there has been some, I believe, misinformation. Um, I will also call it unnecessary hysteria um, regarding uh, both of these rules. And so It is very important just to take a step back and really understand what this is all about um, and what actions were actually taken. So let's first talk about the unverified list rule. So it is confusing because these rules were, and BIS has been doing this for the last three years or so, where they will issue a interim final rule like this one or a final rule and it becomes effective on the date it's published in the not in the federal register like a normal rule but actually in the um, pre-publication website that is hosted by um, by the Federal Register itself. So this is very confusing. And I have talked to BIS about this. I believe that there may be some um, administrative um, law, legal issues as to the validity of these pre-publication um, effective dates. Might be a little bit of a false BIS, start. 
they 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 jumped the gun a little bit on the effective date when they, by by essentially making it effective before it's published. Well, right, they actually get a head start because it's effective immediately on publication, but it's not in the Federal Register, which is the actual official government gazette, which is what's supposed to be giving people public notice of a and I've done some research. I can't find any other agency in the U.S. government that takes this position. BIS swears that they have legal support from the Federal Register, that this is compliant. They do take the position that, of course, a final rule or interim final rule can be published without a proposed rule under the Administrative Procedures Act because it is national security based. So they can, I understand that, but still I have no problem if it's effective on October 13th, but they're making the effective date October 7th, which, and in fact, this, the second rule we're going to talk about was even more complicated because it had three separate effective dates, October 7th, October 21st, and then one in the middle. But let's talk about the unverified list. So those um, who are listening in, who may be sanctions practitioners, are well aware of the SDN list. We all know about the SDN list. I'm not going to say we know and love it. We can know and hate it um, because it's a big list. Um, The unverified list is probably the smallest of the lists that we all look at. Um, And the unverified list, unlike the SDN list on the OFAC side or on the entity list at the BIS level, is not a prohibition. And this is one key point for people to remember. The unverified list is simply a list of companies where the Bureau of Industry and Security, BIS, has not been able to conduct a post-shipment verification um, or pre-license check or has some concerns about the bona fides or legitimacy of that particular company. So, for example, a company submits a license application, a U.S. company submits a license application, Uh, BIS is going to look at that company. Well, BIS does what we all do in terms of due diligence. They're going to do, they're going to use their own resources, but they will use just basic off the shelf things like Google Earth and they'll do a, a review. And if it has some sort of a number in Hong Kong or wherever it is, it looks a little bit like an apartment number and they do a Google Earth uh, review. Um, and you hone in on it, and it could be an office building or, or whatever, um, but they are well aware that particularly in Asia and, and other places that you have these front companies that basically is just, I've been to many of these in, in Asia as well. You go into the door and there's like 30 different names on the outside of the door. Now, that is obviously a red flag. And that's what the unverified lists list is. It's a, it's, it, it's a red flag. And so what it does is only it does not prohibit or require a license if a license is normally not necessary. But what it basically does, it's um, there are three implications. The first one is the most important, which is that before an exporter or re-exporter can ship goods to this party on the unverified list. They have to receive a um, a, 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 a statement called the unverified list. Um, it's it's like an in-use statement, but it's simply just a 
um, a document and the, and the requirements are in the um, EAR itself. And it's basically just the company who you are shipping to must sign this unverified list statement and certify that the goods that they are receiving will in fact be used for, by them for the stated purpose and they will not um, otherwise divert them and that they will cooperate with any in-use checks that the, the Bureau of Industry and Security um, may, may uh, uh, you know, may, may choose to do in the future. That's no different than any other transaction that's subject to the EAR. So you, all you have to do is get this piece of paper in writing prior to shipping. And once you have that, you're good to go. Of course, you need to determine whether there is a, a license requirement as well. So it doesn't mean that you can't ship. It doesn't mean you need a license. It just means that you need to get this piece of paper. The other thing, the other two issues for is um, you cannot use an, a, a license exception to ship to a party on the unverified list. Now, again, that may be license exception RPL or one of the ENC or one of the other. So you can't use a license exception. And the third one only would apply to a U.S. exporter, which is that you have to file an electronic export information, the EEI, um, for all exports, um, regardless of the value um, and regardless of whether it's NLR, for example, no license required, to that particular customer. That wouldn't apply to a non-US re-exporter because there's no EEI filing requirement since it's not being exported from the United States. So it's a little it's a little harder to export to somebody on the UVL, but not but it's not a, a license harder, requirement. But it doesn't mean but not a license requirement. And again, it's a red flag. Now, some companies, I have clients who are very um, you know. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're very cautious and they'll say, well, you know, can, should I be, should I ship to them? Well, my answer is, well, as long as there's no other reason to believe or some other information that, you know, that there's some problem or they're not a legitimate customer, um, go ahead and ship is my view. So there's a company, um, that was added to the, um, in China called Wuxi Biologics that was added to the unverified list um, late last year, I believe it was December. And Wuxi Biologics is a publicly traded company in China. It's a big company in China. And there was a lot of misinformation that, and their stock price went down because it was viewed as being added to the entity list, like Huawei, for example. But it wasn't like Huawei. So some US companies did choose to hold off on their shipments. Um, but the problem right now in China is that because of the zero COVID policy, and that there's only really one BIS um, staff member in Beijing who can do these end use check checks, it's difficult from a timing perspective for BIS to do these particular end use checks. So it wasn't that Huawei, that Wuxi was being uncooperative per se, it was the bottom line is that Mofcom in China has to go with these be with the BIS staff to visit the facility. That's China's requirement. I call them minders or babysitters. It's not a requirement in many other countries. And if Mofcom can't travel because of zero COVID or for whatever reason, then they can't conduct the end use check. 
So that gets back to, so on, um, on October 7th, BIS added um, 31 new companies in China to the unverified list. And so there were a number of universities, there are a number of, um, of companies here, some institutes, some Chinese academies, for example, of geological science. But the biggest company that was named on here is a company called Yangtze Memory Technologies Company, YMTC. So we'll just call them YMTC. And there's been a lot of discussion about YMTC. So there's been a number of efforts by various organizations to put pressure on BIS to add YMTC to the entity list. Uh, YMTC provides memory chips. They sell to Apple, for example. Apple is a big, you know, their supply. And they're doing these are advanced memory technologies that are going to go, you know, in your in your phone as well as other applications. Um, and so YMTC was the company that was a lot of people said, woo, they're on the unverified list. Well, again, it doesn't prohibit exports to YMTC. It just triggers those three requirements that we were just talking about. And then there were media reports that Apple's not going to buy from YMTC or they're putting their relationship on hold, for example. And again, it has nothing to do, this is export controls, nothing to do with Apple's ability to, to purchase items from YMTC, um, even if they were on the entity list. There's no that is on buying from Huawei. That is, in my experience, kind of one huge mis misconception and what gets confused all the time, because yeah. I think you pointed it out perfectly at the beginning. People think of lists and they think of the SDN list. And with the SDN list, obviously, you can't deal with that company at all if you're a U.S. person, unless exactly. authorized by OFAC, but their authorizations are rare. With the BIS lists, certainly the entity list, and even more so the unverified list, lots of dealings are allowed even if the company is on the list. There's just certain restrictions, and, and I think people don't get that. And you know, it's one of the problems from screening too is that you screen, and, and a lot of screen readers say a hit can't do anything, but lots of hits are yeah. different, as we know. Sorry to interrupt. Continue. Yeah, well, that's well, yeah, and that gets to the point about screening, whether it's um, even in the OFAC world. You have to understand the screener who's receiving the list of, of hits has to understand what the different lists are. And that's a key component of education when you're dealing with uh, restricted party screening. So in terms of the hierarchy from the SDN list or the entity list, um, you know, the entity list is, again, not necessarily a prohibition. It triggers a license requirement. So getting back to the to the unverified list issue is that... Um, so these new 31 parties in China, uh, there obviously is a lot of concern. And on the same day, the thing, so there was nothing that unusual or interesting about this unverified list. In fact, on that same day, in that same rule, one of the two Wuxi Biologics entities was removed from the, from the unverified list. So that same rule actually removed a number of companies from the, in China, from the unverified list. So, they do this periodically, they add, they remove, because in this case, this particular Wuxi Biologics, they actually had, uh, I had heard through reliable sources that the in-use check was done last June. And, but it took them until October to publish, to remove them from, from the list. 
There is one other Wuxi biologics entity that they haven't been able to, to review yet, but that will be probably done um, you know, in the coming months. So the other thing about, before we move on to the advanced computing role, the other interesting thing about that happened on October 7th as it relates to the unverified list, and this has also caused, I believe, an unnecessary, um, there's been a lot of misinformation or hysteria about this, um, that the Office of Export Enforcement issued a memorandum. So uh, Matt Axelrod, who's now the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Export Enforcement within the Office of Export Enforcement within BIS, he issued a new policy regarding the, the unverified list. And what this new policy does is that it does put pressure on the foreign governments to assist, to be cooperative in the effort to remove parties from the unverified list. It wasn't targeting the companies per se, but it was really focused on the Chinese government or other governments who may not be cooperative. Right. And I'm glad you pointed that out because I, and, and I think, you know, we can talk about this a little bit more, but it's kind of a nice segue into the advanced computing regulations. I, I do think there was a clear sense as I read the justification for the rule that this is really about the Chinese government, that this is really a message to me anyway, that, that, that the Chinese, that the BIS wants the Chinese government to be more cooperative in end use and end user checks. And to the extent that it's not, it's going to start using the unverified lists as a way to, to essentially interfere with the ability of these companies mm -hmm. to easily export or to easily receive U.S. technology in terms of, of export and U.S. products in terms of export. In, in, in fact, if you look at the memo, um, which you can find on the BIS website, and it actually, the subject of this memo is addressing foreign government prevention of end-use checks. So it's not focused on the companies, it's focused on the government because most for, um, so it says most foreign governments eager to receive U.S. exports welcome our end-use checks and work to assist us with them. When a foreign government prevents an end-use check from being completed, we are denied visibility. When such a situation arises, we will try to work with the foreign government, and um, but a foreign government can prevent BIS from and undermine what BIS is trying to do. So what they are doing here is they're going to, they announce this new policy, which can basically have a negative impact on the parties on the unverified list if the Chinese government, let's just call it what it is here. Right. It's the right. They call government. it foreign governments, um, but this is clearly aimed at China. Yes, exactly. So the idea here is basically what they said is that um, they're implementing this new, they call it the two-step. So this is the, not the Texas two-step, but this is the, the BIS Office of Export Enforcement two-step. And the new two-step is basically saying that if, if we have... Um, um, if we don't have, if the company and the government does, do not cooperate after 60 days, we can then start the process of adding them to the entity list. Now, again, the entity list is the hammer. And that's the hammer that's been successfully hammered Huawei, for example, and others in China and, and around other countries. I mean, I, I represent companies who've been added to the entity list all the time, um, you know, trying to get them off of the entity list. 
Sometimes there's no off-ramp like Huawei, which is a, another issue we can talk about. But so it's not, but it's not a guarantee. It's not that this is some 60-day clock that is ticking that is going to all of a sudden after 60 days, we're going to see another list come out adding these parties to the unver the entity list. That is just not how it works. And in fact, there is a, you know, there's a standard for adding parties to the entity list. It is a it is an interagency process. It's not just BIS um, or the undersecretary waking up. We want to add this particular party to the entity list. There is a process. So this has been another part of the miscommunication. Again, I do believe that if a company is on the unverified list and they want to work cooperatively with BIS and that there is a delay not caused by them, that's caused by the government, BIS can reach out to MOFCOM and um, try to figure out what the problem is. But the pressure, they're trying to put the pressure on MOFCOM here to cooperate. So again, I just would recommend your listeners here, um, you know, take a deep breath, understand, reach out to counsel, discuss what the implications here are. But it doesn't mean that your customer who's on the unverified list is going to be on the entity list in 60 days or even 90 days. It's just a warning. And, and one thing that they're trying to, they being the Commerce Department, is trying to use to scare the Chinese government or foreign governments right. um, into more cooperation with end-use checks. Exactly. And the memo is clear. I mean, it says, upon successful completion of an end-use check with favorable results, Export enforcement will initiate the process to remove that party from the unverified list or entity list, depending on which list they are on at the time of the end use check. So again, it's just a um, another uh, tool in the OEE arsenal that they can use to put pressure on these parties. And so, so with that, I mean, I, I think part of the reason that I think that this is a little bit related is when you turn to these new rules that came out with respect to the um, advanced chips and the advanced chip manufacturing equipment, at least as I read the 128 pages that, that BIS did in terms of <laughs> justifying this, uh, I mean, one thing that one thing that jumped out at me was that there was a, essentially a complaint, and this in, in particular with the U.S. person provisions, I saw this, but even more globally, that BIS is not getting a lot of visibility into how these sorts of items for export are being used in China, and it fears that they're being used by the Chinese military. And so part of the motivation driving this was that even though there may be many civilian uses for these sorts of items, and and they might be largely used in, in the civilian portion of China, the fear that they might be used by the military when combined with this lack of visibility, it seems to me to at least be one of the major drivers for this rule, just as it was for a driver for the changes to the unverified list. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. I mean, it is clear if you read. So the good news is, is that the rule that you're referring to, so on October 7th, when it came out, it was 130 pages. Um, when it when it was uh, published in the Federal Register, which is in using um, uh, three columns, much smaller font uh, that is the normal Federal Register font, it only ended up being um, it ended up being thirty um, something pages. So it's obviously it's it's actually uh, thirty yeah, thirty pages. 
So it's only 30 pages. So that was much easier. Single spaced, teeny little fine print. Single cast, single spaced, 10 point font or whatever they use. Uh, No, exactly. And and, and again, and there's lots of moving parts. This is one of the most complex. I mean, I've been doing this for 32 years now and I've seen some complicated rules. Um, But this is complicated because it has um, many different, it's capturing many different aspects. It's covering very specific technology, but you're right to your point. Again, this is from a big picture, from the policy perspective, this is what BIS is trying to capture, which is again, the use of advanced computing to assist the government of China in military um, applications as well as other potentially problematic applications, such as human rights abuses. So they're focusing, for example, on Xinjiang, Xinjiang region, which is um, because AI can be used by um, hick visions of the world um, with respect to cameras and identification. And, um, and that's been very well documented. And, and that's another focus. Now that gets to the point of a lot of people called this at the beginning, the AI rule. You know, this is focusing on artificial intelligence, um, but that's not really the case. Um, artificial intelligence is only mentioned twice in this rule. And artificial intelligence is a very, very broad, um, you know, it, it captures everything from your most basic iPhone um, giving you a prompt in your text message, what to predict, predicting, that's, that's AI, right. really. And that's a computer learning what, you, what your proposed response to your text message would be, um, yes or no, or I'm not available or whatever, up to the most advancing, advanced um, functions and you know, facial recognition and the like. Great. Well, so... Well- do you want to do you want to go through the I, I've kind of you know I, I've, I've had some clients it's funny they want to you know obviously executives and companies aren't going to read 30 pages single spaced and so companies want to have this distilled and I've tried to distill this down as much as possible and I can only get it into a, a few pages but what I have been able to do is to organize this into basically five separate uh, buckets or or if you will, of, of areas that I think make it more useful for companies trying to figure out the implications to that. Yeah, no, I'd be really curious to hear the five buckets because this rule just seems to go off on, you know, there's two topics, but it goes off in multiple directions on those topics. So I'd be curious to hear how you can get this down to five. I, I, and, and so let's, let's, let, let's yeah. walk through them. And, and, I, and I think it clearly, it's clearly, it, I mean, I, I think this is, I mean, I've seen anywhere between four and six categories, um, you know, because like there are now three separate foreign direct product rules, but let's, let me give you my, my five categories. Okay. So the first one, and again, they all apply to different companies and different applications. So the first one is a new series of ECCNs or export controls on certain hardware um, that can be used in semiconductor manufacturing. Some of these were already captured in other ECCNs, but they have this new 
mean, the mean category is new ECCN 3A090. Um, there's also 4A090, which is confusing because that talks about computers, but it basically refers back to... It's computers with the chips in it. Correct. So, but and again, so this is again, stepping back at what this is intended to do is it int it's intending to only address advanced computing and supercomputing. It's not intended to capture functionalities that may be used for automotive vehicle, automotive function applications and legacy, more mundane um, items that, se that semiconductors are used in. So if you look at 3A090, now 3A090 does impose a new specific regional uh, RS control um, Just that is for China and for and for, for the, the listeners who may not be versed in the it, it, RS is regional stability, which was existed. Regional, st regional, st regional stability, which is not very often often used, but regional stability as a reason for control. So if you look in the commerce control list, you see 3A090. It gives you the reasons for control. And then if you go on to the commerce country chart and RS category one, China is going to be there. So it's clear this is China, but it also does apply to the embargoed countries because it's also controlled for anti-terrorism or AT purposes as well. Um, but again, this is essentially a China rule. So this 3A090, there are several technologies that are specified, which are covered. And when you go through these, these are very, very high-end um, integrated circuits. So it's just called them chips. So these ICs or chips that are covered are super advanced. Um, at least today they are. Um, you know, in two or three years, they may not be. That's another issue that we can talk about. But these ICs, when you go through these, they have very fast bidirectional transfer rates. They have very high performance that is measured in this um, uh, term that's used throughout the EAR and called TOPS, uh, you know, number of operations per second, for example. And these are very, very, very fast, um, high, adva most advanced um, chips. And so these new controls, and I don't want to discount this, uh, but I don't want to overstate this. It is focused on the most advanced technologies. So I do have some clients who are affected, but many clients are not impacted by this. So this is this new, um, uh, these new RS controls. This is the first category are these new ECCNs and controls. And they just, so again, that will apply. And, and they, and I was just going to, to, to follow up on your point, the ECCN lays out technical parameters for these chips that are extremely exactly. detailed so that they know ex it's clear Correct. that their engineers knew exactly what they were aiming for and tried to create an ECCN Correct. that caught that Correct. and only that. And it shouldn't, in a, in a company, there shouldn't be any gray area um, in terms of what's covered. Now, if there is a gray area, you can always submit a commodity classification uh, to verify as a protective measure, for example, to, 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 to verify that you're not in uh, 3A090 or 4A090, for example. So, so this 
first group of controls, again, applies to the items themselves and applies to the export or re-export of those items. So that's the first new sets of controls. Again, relatively narrow to these advanced chips. So the second area is has gotten a lot of publicity. And this is these new controls on semiconductor on certain end uses. So the in-use controls are on. Um, it's if you have one of these new uh, certain ICs, if you know they're going to be used in the production or development or manufacturer of a supercomputer located in China or destined for China. So this is basically the second category of what I'm calling these new in-use restrictions by U.S. companies and items that are actually subject to the EAR, not impacted by the foreign direct product rule, which is a whole separate analysis. So the, and these, these are items that are actually... And these are the, these, this is the new regulation in 744.23 that you're talking about at this point. Correct. It basically correct, sets correct, up correct. a new, if you know that this, your item that you're exporting is going to be used for this purpose, the semi-computing purpose, and again, pretty well defined, correct. in China, you need to get a license, basically. Correct. So this, these in uses, there's three, three in uses. One is supercomputing in uses, which is now defined term in part 772. And it's a very, very, very high, very specific definition of, and I do not believe, I have not verified this or heard anybody use that, but I don't believe that there's actually a computer in China today that meets that definition. Now, obviously they're trying to focus on, they probably chose the most high I've heard that maybe there's one or two computers in the United States that meet this definition. Um, but obviously they're trying to limit and impede China's ability to build these same types of supercomputers. So this, the in-use restriction is the second bucket. And there are the three in-use restrictions. One is on the supercomputing. The second are these advanced, um, advanced end uses. And these are what I've been calling the A, B, and C end uses. And we've heard some, this is this, these are the most current um, technologies, which are, again, are um, no certain logic ICs um, that have a uh, production node of, of 16 or 14 nanometers or less. Um, certain NAND memory integrated circuits um, that this is, has this 128 um, uh, node requirement and certain DRAMs. So if you look in the final rule, you will see these um, logic IC NAND and DRAM parameters referred to throughout. And I call these the A, B, and C end uses. Um, I think it's the easiest way to, to look at them. Because then you can say, because 
They're referred to in many sections, and this is one of the more confusing parts of the rule. It's also in the U.S. person rule that we'll talk about in a minute. But if you think about these A, B, and C and uses as the advanced applications that they're trying to cover, as well as supercomputers, then it makes it a little bit more clear. Great. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I think that that's, it, it really is just kind of driving home the point that there were a lot of engineers involved in writing this rule. And that is one. No, exactly. exactly. Right. And, and, and it was and it was intended to be, they were trying to carve out yep. a particular subset of technology. Yep. So again, in our second, in our second bucket, we have these, we have the supercomputers, we have the A, B, and C advanced technologies. And then the third is um, any item subject to the AR, if you know it's going to be used in the production or manufacture of certain um, ECCNs in category 3B. Now, what is category 3B? This is semiconductor manufacturing equipment. So that's the third uh, restricted in use that we have. So I one of the key points here, and this is a key kind of a practical takeaway to the audience, which is I've been spending a lot of time with clients over the last three weeks. Well, how do you, how can you determine your customer's end use? The only way to do that is to get some statement and some evidence in writing. Now, many companies get end use statements and as a matter of practice, this is something that you have no choice in my view, because it talks about knowledge in order if you don't have knowledge. Um, well, the only way that you're not going to have knowledge is if you don't ask the question. Um, if you ask the question, do you or do you not um, use, will you use my hardware or software in the production of these three applications? So that's where I have um, modified clients in use statements because this is really essential that you need to know. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think this is, this is there, there are a number of these um, end use and end user requirements in, 70, in 744. And if you are operating in that territory, you really do need to get an end use statement. You need to have get an end Good. use statement that is believable. I mean, that's the other thing that I talk a lot about with clients. If, you know, one, you've got to get one and it's got to be a real end use statement. But is there anything else about what you're doing that if BIS came back later and said, you got this statement, but how could you possibly rely on it? Where Are there any other facts out there that you've seen that, that, that don't add up? Because if you just get the end use statement, but it's not one that's reasonable to rely on, you might as well not get it at all. Well, that's, that's, always, the, that's always the challenge in end use statements. Yep. I mean, again... Somebody and anybody is willing to sign anything. That's some people will say, well, what's the, what's, how useful is this piece of paper if, if uh, I can't trust it? Well, that's obviously would apply to anything. Um, but if you do have some, you know, and most of the companies in this particular sector, in the semiconductor sector, I mean, again, they're working, this is a highly technical area. They have to work with their customers. Yep. I've, I've, I've heard that there's only maybe a dozen or maybe not less than 20, less than two dozen for sure, fabs in China that have the ability to produce these um, advanced 
computing applications, for example. So, and people talk and engineers, many of these companies have people in China on the ground. And so you can, obviously you can't self-blind um, or put your head in the sand or however, whatever metaphor you want to use. But, you know, if you have no reason to know and you get this piece of paper and, and they sign it, then, you know, you're going to be, BIS would have a, a, a very difficult time you know, bringing in an enforcement case. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. No, they're good protection. And, you know, and I, and, and I think that that's key to the, to the clients being able to exactly. comply with this rule. Exactly. We'll talk about enforcement in a second, but so let me, the third, the third category is there's two, this now it's, there's two new foreign direct product rules that it applies to advanced computing and advanced and, and supercomputers. So this applies to non-U.S. companies only. So this is, again, if you're a U.S. company, you don't care about the foreign direct product rule. That's your customer's issue. So again, if you, I have clients that are out, outside of the U.S., I know you do as well, that this is having to focus on, are they producing items for these A, B, and C in uses or supercomputing in uses um, using U.S. origin controlled hardware and technology, including the 3A090 that we were just talking about as well. So that's the third bucket. But again, that bucket only applies to non-US persons as well. The, the fourth category, um, some people have lumped this into the prior category because there's the foreign direct product rules. There's now nine different foreign direct product rules. Again, I've been doing this a long time. We always, basically, we had the national security foreign direct product rule, you know, that's been around since the 1950s. Um, and now it's expanded to the Huawei foreign direct product rule, to the military and user foreign direct product rule, et cetera. Now there are nine, there's Russia foreign direct product rule. So these are two new foreign direct product rules. But the third new foreign direct product rule, and I, I'm using this as a separate category because this applies only to 28 listed companies in the rule that are already on the entity list. So we all know about footnote one that applies to Huawei. Footnote four, there's a new footnote four that applies to these 28. Now, again, this is a foreign direct product rule. So this applies to non-US companies um, who are using certain US origin software, hardware to produce chips outside of the U.S. And this applies to them. Right. I'm glad you added that because I think, you know, we, we say that our show is for um, trade nerds and normal human beings alike. For the normal human beings who, <laughs> who may be listening, I think, you know, this foreign direct product rule is, as Doug said, is just wildly complex and there's now nine versions of it. But but basically what what BIS is trying to get at is if you make a product outside the United States, but it is the direct um, product of U.S. technology or U.S. software, then you're going to be governed by U.S. export controls rules if it's a certain type of product. If you fall within the parameters of one of these nine new um, you know, foreign direct product rules, there's what, there was one in this new rule for advanced computing items. There's another for supercomputers. But there's, and Doug is talking about the last one where it 
only affects, it's a new type of foreign direct product rule that says if you make this product in a certain way, that you are governed, that you will be governed by U.S. export controls. And, and in fact, with respect to that one, you'll almost always need a license to send it to any of the entities on the entity list. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, it, so again, I've been, you know, with Huawei since 2019. Um, and then since that expanded to the Huawei specific foreign direct product rule, which was in, I remember exactly where I was. That was in August of 2019. Uh, I was on top of a mountain and then the, the Huawei foreign direct product rule was issued by BIS. And, and, uh, my, even though I was on a mountain, my phone was, was working. This, was this Kilimanjaro and, uh, or some other mountain, Doug? This was Mount Rainier. This was Mount Rainier. Um, <laughs> in my tent on Mount Rainier. And the foreign direct, the Huawei specific foreign direct product rule uh, uh, was issued by BIS. And that all these non US companies who I work with are, you know, captured by this. And it was like, oh, what do I do now? Um, so let me just go back to the, so that was the, so again, just to, just to recap, the first one was this new, these new ECCNs. The second was these, in use, the three in use restrictions. Um, the third bucket is um, uh, is these two new foreign direct product rules. The fourth bucket is the, is this addition of this foreign direct product rule to the twenty eight. And what is the fifth category? This is the new restrictions on U.S. persons. So again, this is unusual. U.S. persons have generally it's not like sanctions where U.S. persons wherever they are located. Um, are restricted. Um, you know, in fact, um, there's, you know, a U.S. person, um, there's no restriction on a U.S. person, for example, um, facilitating a shipment, um, you know, to to a party on the entity list, like Huawei, right. for example. So, you know, I, you know, as a lawyer, I can, I can do that. As a non-U.S. person working abroad, they can do that. This is, and so, BIS has not historically imposed restrictions on U.S. persons. So this is highly unusual. Um, and, and this has gotten a lot of, of uh, publicity um, in the press, which is that, um, uh, and, and I think also caused a lot of misunderstanding about scope, et cetera. And so what this does is this imposes a new licensing requirement on U.S. persons if they support or facilitate certain activities involving um, advanced computing and other applications in China. So again, but if you really delve into this, again, it's not everything. Again, it goes, it restricts um, the shipping or transmitting or transferring um, to those A, B, and C applications in China. Again, the advanced the logic, the DRAM and NANs. So it's not everything, it's just those three advanced technologies. Um, and then also um, the hardware application. So if, again, if you're a US person and you know that this particular facility in China is manufacturing semiconductor production equipment, um, then there would be a licensing requirement for that US person. So this is, again, when you delve into this, it's relatively limited. Now, BIS today at, at uh, five o'clock Eastern time um, did issue these new FAQs. They did address this. I don't think that the FAQ was all that helpful. Um, they tried to be helpful. I don't think it's all that helpful. 
Um, I think there's going to still need some clarification, but I have been um, uh, advising some non-U.S. persons as well as U.S. companies so far on how to address this issue. But again, it is key because um, to know the scope of the limitation. So again, that's the fifth category. Um, and again, it's, but the unique part about that I should mention, it's not U.S. items, it's prohibiting U.S. persons from providing certain services to non-U.S. items, items that are not subject to the EAR. So that's another important thing to remember. So, so that's another unique aspect of that. So those are the that those are the five aspects of the new advanced supercomputing um, rule that was issued. Uh, by that is really helpful. And I did want to kind of pause on the last one with respect to U.S. persons because it is so unusual. I mean, we're talking about products that are expressly not subject to the EAR. Um, so they're not U.S. origin products that are in China and they're not even subject to the foreign direct products rule because they, then they would still be subject Correct. to the EAR. And they're basically, BIS is telling U.S. persons and it's it's kind of a little bit, I found it odd the way that they did this because they already had a rule, 744.6, that said U.S. persons can't do certain, you know, really problematic things like particip participate in uh, product, in projects in certain countries that had nuclear end uses, that had certain missile end uses. And so it, the way that they did this rule was that they didn't actually prohibit directly U.S. persons from working in these plants or facilitating certain activities with respect to these super chips, they said, we're putting you on notice that your activities, and then they list these activities involving the chips, could result in some sort of military use, and therefore you need a license to do the following activities. And so it was kind of odd because first of all, they didn't say they would result in the activities that US persons needed a license to do or were prohibited from doing by 744.6. They just said that they could result in that and therefore were imposing a license requirement. So it was kind of an odd, it was an odd rule in my view because it, it didn't just directly come out and say, you can't do this or you'd need a license. It, it tried to use the 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 construct or the architecture that was provided by 744.6 already and then squeeze into that in a way I found a little bit weird and not quite a tight fit. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm not sure why yeah. they did that. I guess maybe they didn't want to create a new rule that would do just just this. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I'll have to see what I can find on that. But, but, I, but I'll talk to... Um, some of my friends at BIS, but that's actually a good point. Um, so you, it sounds like the the FAQs came out today. Anything interesting in the FAQs that uh, that you wanted to talk about before we say goodbye to our listeners? Yes. So that, that's a that's a good question. Um, so the FAQs, um, I there's five pages worth. Um, the most useful ones, um, I would say, are uh, the first one, number question um, on the second page. This is very important because there is a term semiconductor fabrication facility. It's used in the in this yep. rule. And they actually, it says, does this term refer to the actual fabrication facility at the beginning of the process? 
in other words, where the technology node is created, or to an OSAT facility at the end of the manufacturing process. An OSAT is a outsourced semiconductor assembly and test. Um, it's the back end, you know, the front end and the back end is what it's referred to in, in the semiconductor world. BIS, actually, this is the most useful one. They said that a semiconductor fab um, is a building where the production at the restricted technology level occurs. Subsequent steps at facilities, such as assembly, test, or packaging, that do not alter the techn technology levels are not covered. Interesting. So this is very useful. So now a company can send, as long as, um, even if they're manufacturing, and OSAT is manufacturing or working on these technology nodes, they can still send equipment to those OSATs. Big, big, big. Yeah, no, that, that uh, is very big because I know that that rule in particular, there are more U.S. persons than I realized in China working in this industry. And they, I've seen yeah. a lot of questions from there in particular, including what is a fab facility, which is where a lot exactly. of those restrictions are. So that are. was a useful one. The other, the other one is they made also regarding the term facility, um, they're, asked, they're asked whether or not, um, does what, what is the fab? So some fabs, you know, that I work with have, you know, they, they have one building, you know, because these buildings are huge. And if they're going to do a, a new, um, more advanced node, they don't just retrofit it. It's not like they have the same production line. They, in, in many cases, they have to build a brand new building. So they actually say here in, two, in 2Q2, which basically says that if the new building, even if it's on the same campus, is not that covered, it's not a covered facility. So if it's producing a 28 um, nanometer node um, and it happens to be next door to the 14 nanometer node, then that is not a covered facility. Now, obviously, you have to be concerned about diversion and the like, um, but that's another story. Um, the other key things, they do talk about U.S. persons here. I don't think it's all that useful. All they do say it doesn't extend to, um, uh, it, it does not extend to um, administrative or clerical activities. Um, that's one interesting thing. And so I, overall, um, oh, the other, oh, here, the other interesting thing was, this is a question I've been asked. I've asked them several times. There were some there were some news reports about um, so-called licenses that had been granted to Samsung and some other Korean and maybe TSMC that allowed them to do certain things. But this these so-called licenses were announced like two days after the rule. So they clearly were not licenses. So what turns out that they actually were letters, that they did send some letters to the major um, fabs around the world saying that you can continue to do certain activities um, for one year. And this is different than the temporary general license. That's what I was going to ask. It sounds in, a little like the temporary general license, but it sounds longer. But it's not. Right. It's, it, was a, it was a letter basically authorizing them to do certain things um, to allow exports to, chi to China. So basically it does say BIS has issued authorizations in limited circumstances to allow continued operations in China. The company who received the BIS authorization should provide a copy of that to you as the seller directly, which is good. Yeah. Um, and the holder and you and the holder of the authorization should jointly determine, um, meet the authorization in that particular letter. 
So I actually, um, so that's good. And I'm glad they made this more transparent than this pre-opaque um, guessing um, situation that we were in in the last week or so, two weeks. Um, but I actually, it's interesting. Um, somebody asked me today, well, what if I have an export that is authorized by this letter and I'm exporting it from the US to a facility in China that is legally authorized? How do I, how do I, what do I say on my electronic export information? So it's not detained by China, by, by customs or by BIS. Because it's not really NLR, because um, it's under this RS control. There's no license, to, there's no license number <laughs> that you can include. How do you reference this? So this is an unintended consequence that they just really haven't thought through. And it does um, create some interesting practical um, issues. Going forward, I mean, I think that this is going to be a topic that we're probably going to need to circle back on in a couple of months to see how it's playing out because it is the subject of a lot of concern. So this has been incredibly helpful. Um, I'm going to put the floor open to you if you have any last comments, and and then we'll. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, th th obviously there's a lot here, and we could talk all day about this. Um, one of the things that I think would be an interesting discussion for our next segment would be the enforcement. I've been asked about that by several people. How does BIS go enforce this? That's a whole nother discussion that actually goes to your expertise as well in terms of, of um, on, on the, on the um, enforcement side and your experience with that. Uh, and, and so, but that's a whole interesting area that I would recommend for a either a separate episode or a future well, episode. That's a great way to end it because we would love to have you back. And I heard that as a commitment to come back. So sometime sometime <laughs> in the next couple of months, we will have an enforcement segment on this. And I think it'll mention both that that area of enforcement. And we can also circle back on some of the things that, that prompted this UVL rule, because I think that was an enforcement concern as well. But uh, thanks for thanks for being here, Doug. It was great to have you. And, and now we'll, we'll have you back again soon. Okay, thanks sounds good, Tim. Okay, take care. take care. All right, stay sanctions free and, and stay out of the fab facilities, everybody. Take care. Produced by HeartCast Media.